Yeah, there are a lot of opportunities. Fundraising in particular, I will tell you that there is an opportunity for every kind of person out there. That was Matt Hug speaking about fundraising, the job and career opportunities it offers, and other related topics, which is our focus on today's episode, episode number 52 of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. As mentioned, today we're going to discuss a vital multi-billion dollar industry that seeks to help societies and people around the world function better. I'm speaking about fundraising. In part one of this two-part series, we covered such topics as what the different kinds of fundraising are, how fundraising has evolved over the past few decades, differences in how funds are raised around the world, and COVID-19's impact on the fundraising industry thus far. In episode number 52, part two of the series, we'll speak more about the latest fundraising approaches, what the near-term future of fundraising may look like, what opportunities the industry has to offer to those in the know, and how you can determine if a nonprofit cause is worth your donor dollars or other support. To help us do that, we've got a fundraising expert. He's Matt Hug. Matt Hug is an author and instructor in nonprofit management in the United States and abroad. He is president and founder of Nonprofit.Courses, an on-demand e-learning educational resource for nonprofit leaders, staff, board members, and volunteers with thousands of courses in nearly every aspect of nonprofit work. Matt has taught nonprofit management at several universities and technology companies online and in person in the United States, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Matt's past work includes fundraising for the University of the Arts, Ursinus College, University of Cincinnati, and the Boy Scouts of America. He has a BS from Juniata College and an MA in Philanthropy and Development from St. Mary's University of Minnesota. Matt, one other thing before we move into the future, which you started to move into with that dilemma that exists mm. with virtual and non-virtual is maybe actually it's maybe two things. On the good side, yeah. I, during COVID, have ordered a lot of food from a local supermarket. Sure. And what I find is they'll say, your bill is $21.35. Would you like mm. to add another 65 cents for the World Wildlife Fund? Sure. Whoever it might be. That seems to me to be something that's relatively new, but I think it began before COVID. I'll have you comment on that. Yep. And the other one that's, again, before COVID, but still relatively new to me, but is actually, in my mind, annoying, <laughs> is repeated phone calls from charitable organizations to whom I've given money. I won't name them, no. but they repeatedly call. I don't even know that they leave messages, but they, I see the same numbers. It'll tell you who's calling. And it's almost counterproductive. I sometimes get to the point where I feel like calling them up and saying, if you keep calling me, I'm not going to donate anymore. So could yeah. you comment just 
briefly about the supermarket concept mm -hmm. and also about all these phone calls. Yeah, so the supermarket concept is actually just a high-tech version of that little cash box that used to sit next to the countertop, ah. except that it forces the decision on you. You know, one of the things that's, uh, that you learn pretty quickly when you do this work is that um, not asking doesn't work. <laughs> so, right. Right, uh, and you, ha you have to ask. You have to put people in somewhat of an uncomfortable position. And so, when you're looking at that screen, saying, "Oh yeah, you know, I ought to do the rest of that, round up that dollar to make that gift, right?" Or that person in front of me who has just rung me out is going to think I'm, you know, not a good person. Uh, I mean that that works. And so that's uh, even better than that cash box that sits there, and it's a lot less uh, cumbersome for everybody to do. Yeah. The trick is for the nonprofit to be that organization yes. uh, to, to be able to get in there and do that. Absolutely. Um, but it's uh, that that's a positive thing kind of bring. But the other part of that, though, it's not so positive is that it takes people kind of off the hook when they do our encounters. Oh, well, I give you at the grocery store all the time or something. Oh. And they don't make those bigger gifts. So, and plus you you usually can't get the donor information. I'm just going to leave the next part here, yes. uh, which is really important to do. Uh, I mean, nonprofits have learned this since like the beginning of direct mail is that a lot of times the first and second and third solicitations aren't making you money. But if you get in that habit of donating, eventually as a nonprofit, you start turning a surplus on that person and that makes it worthwhile to keep on doing that. Yes. And those cash boxes and, and that little um, thing you do at the grocery store counter is not giving you those names to build that relationship so that you can raise more money. And that that's kind of a, a bit of a loss there. Yeah. Now names leads us to your phone calls. <laughs> yes. uh, the, um, you know, the reason they do it is because it works. Wow. <laughs> it really comes down to that. Now, it turns out that in my classes that I teach uh, in fundraising, all the time I will ask, so uh, who likes getting these phone calls? Who likes getting this mail, right? Nine out of 10 times, especially anybody who's younger say, oh, I hate the phone calls, I hate the mail. But it turns out that if you like the organization, if you already have an affinity to them, you are much more likely to give or to take, at least take those, that open that mail and take that phone call. And that's what they're counting on. And, and their ability to form that relationship with you. Now, don't, don't think of it as a pesky phone call. Think of it as an opportunity to form a relationship with that organization. <laughs> okay. <laughs> their ability to form that relationship with you to get you to care yet more about their mission will result in more giving and higher level of giving. So yeah, it, it's not as effective as it used to be. Uh, it turns out you say, well, do they, they don't leave voicemails because best practices say don't leave voicemails Okay. Uh, because it doesn't generate the revenue uh, that if you actually talk to somebody will, and you can send them a note, call them, put, I, I've had lots of people on a do not call list, believe me. <laughs> so yeah. You can opt out. It's not as easy as just clicking, right? But, uh, but it is possible to opt out of those. And by the way, do not call lists, the national in the US, national do not call lists and all that uh, doesn't apply to political speech or charities, but they, a good nonprofit will respect that for sure. They, they really don't want to annoy you, believe me. Yeah. And they're, <laughs> and they're great causes. I feel like I'm donating to. Yeah. Looking forward is partly about looking into the future, of course. Sure. 
And I want you to think about or predict. Got my crystal ball here. Go ahead. Crystal ball. What changes, Matt, you think we're going to see or trends in how nonprofits raise money, raise funds over the next several years, up to five years or so? Well, let me tell you what's not going to be different. And this is really important, is the basics. You know, that one thing that, that over my career lifetime, as long as it's been that I don't want to admit, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I remember a guy coming on, a, a very well-regarded fellow named Dave Dunlap invented something called moves management, which is, became a standard in the industry, who said that at Cornell, he was doing this really cool thing to get people to work. It was called email. <laughs> wow, email. Wow. Right? Yeah. And so, but my point is though, that the basics don't change. So, but what does change is the speed and the technology to, to facilitate that speed and, and how we might take something that seemed old and tweak it. Like I said, about crowdfunding versus that other way of doing things, right. Or whatever, and kind of updating it because nonprofits as, as a whole, but fundraisers in particular are under always a lot of pressure to bring in more money faster. So whatever you can do to get more message out there, uh, what's the oxymoron? Mass customization, right? Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. To, to, to make people feel like they are connected with you, but in an efficient way that you don't have to spend as much time doing it is going to be up there. Uh, that's why social media was so attractive. Uh, now, whether it's kind of produced results or not, is we can have a really good debate on that, but at least it's getting more people engaged in that relationship. So yeah, social media will be out there now, but uh, you know, look at the newest technologies coming out. You know, virtual reality, I'm sure is going to be a big thing sometime because at some point folks are going to want to see, they're going to want to see at home instead of going out and doing that tour. Because we know already, something old, right, is that when you bring somebody on a tour and guide them through whatever it is your mission does, you're forming a stronger relationship, they're seeing the mission carry out, and they become stronger donors, bigger donors. Well, if you put a virtual reality glasses on them that maybe you mail to them, right, to only the, you know, whatever donors, or if they get finally get out there enough, right, that people use regularly, you can then do that and, in effect, do that same thing with people. The other thing, actually kind of a behind the scenes thing that will develop is better prospect research. So there is a whole genre of fundraising kind of work going on out there, which um, is really from public sources, uh, looks into whether somebody has uh, the capacity to make a gift, whether they have an interest in what you're doing, and whether you can get access to them, right? CIA, the, if you don't have all three of those, you can't get a gift. Well, the ability to do that has accelerated from the stack of books behind the, the person we called the sec office secretary at Lebanon Valley College uh, that she could look up stuff in or run to the courthouse and find a record or something to now all this online search with proprietary databases and open public records and all that. And our ability to do that and identify more closely the alignment of interest, because interest is where you want to start, is going to get much better as these records become more accessible to us. Yes. I often hear my guests talking about data analytics, which sounds yeah. like what, mm -hmm. what you're talking what about is. here. Yeah. What about just comment, if you would, on that debate or not a debate, or maybe it's more <laughs> of a conundrum What's that? of do I do a virtual event or do I do a live event if things 
fully become normal again because people, some have gotten used to, I don't really feel like going to something. I'll just sit here and watch it. How is that likely to play out? Do you think we'll have a hybrid? No, it's going to be all the above. So you're going to have to do both. And what, now the question is whether you're going to do both simultaneously, but you've got a, a classification of people, right, who back, I've mentioned that book uh, before about seven faces of philanthropy, uh, prints and file. They had a group of people who uh, considered themselves socialites. That was prints and files classification of them. These were people who felt like events and having fun was part of philanthropy. I mean, which is fine. And th those are the folks who are party. Those are the ones who are going to go to that event and they're going to make sure they're be there. And they might drag or, along other people with them, but that's their thing. You're going to have that, but then you're going to have the introverts who want to stay at home and you want to get them to be engaged. Now that they have an option, well, gosh, I didn't have to go back in 2020. Why do I have to go in 2021? Yeah. And so you got to play to that as well to engage them. And it may be the same. It may be different. I mean, we may be looking at something like the uh, old uh, Jerry Lewis, uh, you know, MDA uh, telethons where you had a live audience and then you had the show in the studio and they yes. flipped back and forth. So uh, it's going to become much more sophisticated uh, in doing this and doing both. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay. <laughs> Well, the other reason we call it looking forward, because looking forward tends to connote positive thinking, optimism. Yeah. We think about opportunities with looking forward. And we know that a lot of people have lost their jobs because of COVID. There are always people, you and I have been among them, who have changed jobs. Plenty of people change careers, people go into second careers, students mm -hmm. looking to figure out what I'm going to do with my life, what should I major in, and yeah. then, of course, entrepreneurs and investors. Sure. So that's a motley crew, but I'm <laughs> curious if you think about the large universe that fundraising comprises, yep. where do you see opportunities in some of those different areas? Yeah, actually, I see a lot of opportunities. There, there's some issues that people have to face in that there is a bit of a bias uh, against people coming in mid-career. It's not rational. Um, it's like anything else, right? Uh, somebody's been doing a job for 30 years and somebody decides to change and looks at this person who's you know changing and says, well, wait a minute, I've been doing this. Why are you good at this, right? And, and there's also some cultural feeling like, well, working the nonprofit's easy. And I worked at a bank. And so of course I can run a nonprofit. And that's not the case at all. But people, because you're not going to turn around to an executive director and say, go run the bank. But yeah, there are a lot of opportunities. Fundraising in particular, I will tell you that there is an opportunity for every kind of person out there. Because the person who writes direct mail copy is very different than the person who's going to visit somebody personally. So I belong to, in fact, I helped steward this uh, uh, this group called uh, NCN, uh, which is Nonprofit Career Network, part of, if you go to greatcareers.org, um, it's a job transition group. Started here in Philadelphia, and now it's nationwide because we do Zoom. And this one woman was really into genealogy. She was really into you know, family history stuff and figuring out and all this, right? And she's, oh, but I wanna you know, see if I can get a job in nonprofits or whatever. I said, you know what, prospect research is like perfect because there's so many transition skills there. And I, I'm a bit of a family history geek. And I knew that what I was doing 
in my family history work was exactly, I was doing with dead people what she could be doing, and she was doing with dead people, what she could be doing with alive people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there is that, where you have skills that can be transferred over in all sorts of different areas. But it's really important to investigate specifically what you want, because one of the big things that folks don't really understand is that the more specific you are in saying, I want to be a direct male copywriter for nonprofits, right? If you can get that specific, your chances of finding a job in that area are much better than saying, oh, well, I want to do anything. I'll just just put me in coach, right? Uh, Because what happens is that you end up taking a a nonprofit analogy, you are better able to recruit volunteers who know specifically what you want to do, who then start seeing out there what it is that you've described to them because you've defined that better for them. Yeah. Um, so it's really a, a bit of psychology there, but also um, it, it'll accelerate your job search a lot better. But people, uh, yeah, from outside nonprofits all the time. And the other place, by the way, to not only look is not only in the nonprofit, but the nonprofit support businesses. So there are like companies that make plaques. There's companies that uh, do software and websites. There's companies who do design work, but they, but their market niche is nonprofits. And so either starting or Uh, starting a company or working for a company that has that niche, what you'll end up with after a few years is actually a bunch of contacts among all your clients and others, because you'll end up going to trade shows like the Association of Fundraising Professionals or something. And you'll meet people in these nonprofits that then maybe you say, oh, that's what I want to do. And then you can transition from there. And they are much more likely to look at you because you have had some related experience in nonprofits. Those are great suggestions. A couple others I want to throw at you. Yeah. I mentioned to you before we went on the air, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. that I know somebody or know of somebody who is selling a fundraising consultancy that they owned. So there would be opportunities for fundraising consultants too? Yes, definitely. Um, And and often fundraising consultants will come from people who have been in the business for a long time, right? But then there are also other people who have had related experiences and decide to apply it to fundraising. I have a couple of friends like that. Uh, The one that comes to mind is uh, my friend Ellen Bristol down in Florida, who was an IBMer. She was in IBM sales and really uh, did a great job building a fundraising consultancy. Uh, And in fact, a little plug here. I wrote a book on this. Uh, so you can go to Amazon, find my name, find the book, right? But the point is, there's a lot of opportunities in consulting that, that you can get into from the outside, especially in, well, like technology consulting, for example, or other places, or even just fundraising consulting, because there's there's also the other part to think of, there are subgenres of fundraising, but there's also back office subgenres. <laughs> so okay. I mentioned prospect research, right? The other one is uh, nonprofit technology. Uh, these databases, you know, when they call you from uh, whatever nonprofit, there is a technology company behind that database who has pulled together that information who enables that call to occur. And there are other companies that have databases for fundraising or alumni or volunteers or even uh, accounting specifically for nonprofits. Okay. And one last area, if you could comment on it, 
a little mm -hmm. further would be you got a master's degree in <laughs> fundraising. You were in the first class. I got to keep talking it up, folks. Matt was in the first <laughs> class. Did you hear that? Think My Mary. question is, I'm a student mm -hmm. or I'm a parent of a student or a grandparent of a student sure. who may have some interest in working in the nonprofit world and yeah. possibly even in fundraising. Sure. What do you advise them? Should they get a master's in fundraising? They're, they're just starting out in life. They're not changing careers. Yeah. What do you advise them my, to do? My, my first advice, and being also somebody who has taught in master's programs for fundraising and for nonprofit management, is to get experience in the thing, right? So get a junior staff job doing fundraising, right? Maybe even in some whatever mission purpose it is that you're doing, right? Do that first. Because my best students were the ones who came in with experience. The ones who came right out of undergrad and got into the master's degree for nonprofit management or for philanthropy and development or whatever, didn't nearly have the context into which all these things fit. So after you do two or three years of that, then yeah, definitely look into this. If, if it, and also that helps you understand that, yeah, this is something, you know, it's more than an ideal. It's like on the ground that I can do this and grab onto one of these programs. Uh, like I said before, you can go online, there's hybrid. I don't know that there are many like ongoing evening programs on it. Now there are a couple places if you want, like uh, Indiana University in Indianapolis will have a full blown go to PhD program in wow. this kind of work. I think NYU, I don't know if NYU has a PhD, but they also have a very solid program. But the uh, the idea though is to get a little bit of experience so you have some context into which all this is happening. And then, yeah, check it out. It's a great experience and it will make you eligible for management positions. Uh, and really there are two ways any career is gonna take a track here. And this isn't just from fundraising. You know, you move up the management ladder or you specialize into something in great detail like plan giving or, or direct response or something like that. But yeah, I definitely encourage people to do this because you know, education opens doors. And even if you, and the other thing too, is even if you just take a course or two in fundraising, you become more valuable to your organization, whether you end up with a degree or not, because if you are able to connect your job to revenue, you're gold. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. You are gold to that organization. That's a great tip. Yeah. I want to mention what might be another opportunity sure. for the fundraising community. Mm -hmm. And then I want to ask you one last question that would be helpful to anybody listening and then we'll finish with having you talk a little bit more about how they can get in touch with you of course the opportunity i'm speaking of is earlier in my career my focus was on marketing to people over age 50 yep. and i'm proudly one of them now i wrote <laughs> that before i was and we have roughly speaking just in the united states not even factoring in our friends outside the United States, there's probably now 70 plus million still alive baby boomers. Yes, so, right. Do they not present a huge opportunity for the fundraising organizations yes. of the world? Yes, and this is not a new phenomenon. So earliest in my career, we were wringing our hands about whether baby boomers would give 
we were in the thick of the greatest generation, uh, you know, the World War II vets. And we were saying, oh, there are such donors and baby boomers don't quite seem to be up. You know, what are we doing? Can we get them to give? And you know what? Their life cycle turned and they're donors now. And they're a great opportunity for people. Sure. No, this is this is really good that, you know, because it's really proven that like, you know, in the beginning, there are only a few times in somebody's life cycle where they feel like they can be generous in a philanthropic way. And one of those times is before retirement, before they started, and but they've kind of hit the, the stride in their career where they're making the most money. And that's where a lot of boomers are, or actually getting past that now. The early boomers, right? The born earliest boomers are at the plan giving stage where they have, uh, they're now looking at their wills and, or, uh, or looking at gift annuities where they give some money and then they get money back over a lifetime and the corpus goes to the organization. So yeah, there is a lot of opportunities for boomers now uh, as we wring our hands about the next younger generation and whether they're going to be donors and, and they will be. <laughs> yes. And, and I know that you didn't specifically point to this, hmm. but if I think back to one of the strategies that I wrote about in, in a book that I wrote on marketing to people over 50, hmm. it probably makes sense for some organizations who are involved in fundraising to hire some individuals who are baby boomers, oh. who would then be appealing to the baby boomers totally. to please donate. Yeah. When I was in since University of Cincinnati, I ran the outside of Cincinnati fundraising campaigns. And that was a study in being able to, we, we had a, I'm pleased to say we had a, at the time, very diverse staff, right? Older and younger, ethnicity, gender, and all that, right? It was definitely important to be able to have somebody uh, match their donor, whether it was personality, whether it was age or whatever. These are very unique things to, you know, that Rubik's cube turns all different yes. ways. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the smart organizations know that. And it's not lost on them to be able to have people of that. Now, the, the problem really becomes whether folks of certain ages or, you know, wh however you slice it, are willing to work for the money that a lot of nonprofits are willing yes. to pay. Yes. Uh, sometimes that will fall to folks who are early career folks at whatever age they are, because early career can become at different ages. If you're able to get through that, uh, yeah, it's a smart thing to do. And I've seen it applied and it really works that you have that. Now, I mean, sometimes it's just a personality match and it doesn't matter how old they are or a donor takes that fundraiser as like their, uh, their mentee or somebody, you know, they, they kind of connect with and, uh, and have a different kind of relationship. It's still a donor relationship, but it's also that they develop this mentor mentee kind of thing going on. Sure. Last thing before we get to how people can reach you. This is something I'm sure you could talk about for quite a while, but I'm going to ask <laughs> you to be to succinct <laughs> with this one as we're coming to sure. a close here. And that yeah. is many of us who will be listening to this and millions of other people get solicited all the time. For me, it's, of course, as it probably is for most people with mailings. And it's, it's usually mailings from organizations I've given to or those yeah. that are connected to those kinds of organizations. Yeah. I am going to throw a name out here. You don't have to think about this name necessarily, but I've more recently going to a site that's run by Charity Navigator. Yep. I'm trying to get to having you tell us, how do we know 
if it's a charity that's unfamiliar to us, yeah. or maybe even one that we've been giving to just out of habit for 10 years, sure. whether or not we should either give to them for the first time or continue giving to them. Is there an easy way for us to make that decision? Or between this wildlife organization and this one and this one? Okay, so real quick, number one, focus on the organizations that you love, that, that whose mission calls to you, right? Number one. Number two, you named a great one, which is uh, Charity Navigator, Better Business Bureau um, Giving Alliance. I think it's give.org. I'm not check that out. I think that's what it is. And there are a couple of others out there who are great resources for checking them out. One thing though, that people get really fooled by is how much money they're spending to, to raise money. And I say fooled because there's this ethic in the, in the world that says the less you spend to raise money, the more, the better the charity is because they're being in quotes, more efficient, right? Turns out that's not the case. If somebody's coming in at zero, they're being disingenuous at best, right? If they're spending like one or 2%, they're probably not spending enough to get money. Now, if they're spending 50%, then they're spending too much. So, it, you know, 10, 10, 15 maybe is really good. That's a solid number for that because they're, they're investing enough to get a, a strong return on the dollar. The other thing too, is that you don't know what methods they're using. Now you're getting mail. That's an expensive way of raising money but in the beginning. It actually gets cheaper as it moves forward. But if they're doing events, if they're doing, that's another expensive way of raising money. So the, it, how they raise money makes an impact on that number. And that you're only going to see the aggregate in those things. But you want to you check out, are they a legitimate nonprofit first, even if they're on that website? And just kind of go through the numbers. You know, Are you comfortable with how much their executives are making. There are the people on the board names that you might know or say, you know, yeah, and you might not know them personally, but you say, yes, this person has the same kind of ethics because they do this kind of job or whatever. It does take time to, to do this, um, to be able to winnow that through. However, the alternative is something else. You could just simply give directly to the person, say, that um, needs the help, right? But what goes unsaid is that nonprofits are the vetting institutions to see whether the people or cause, whatever it is their mission they're serving, largely the people are legitimately those people who they sh who should be served with that service. Okay. If you just give directly to somebody, then you are taking that responsibility onto yourself, which is fine. You we want to do that. God bless you, go do it, not a problem. Yeah. But yeah. if there's a problem, that person who looks like they're panhandling and you give the money to them, ends up getting up at the end of the day, taking their stash of cash and driving off in their car to the suburbs, that's your fault there. But the nonprofit who helps those people might know that that person isn't legitimately there. That's a bad example, right? Because that rarely ever happens. Yeah. But the point is though, that, that there's a big difference there. Okay, that's great. Matt, how can our listeners find out more about you, your courses, your consulting and training, and anything else you'd like to share with them? Yeah. So go to my website. And yeah, everybody says that. But what you're going to see is 5,000 
more actually, videos and other resources, podcasts like this one for nonprofits from less than five minutes to over five hours. It's nonprofit.courses. Wow. And uh, it's really all about giving the best, uh, you know, the, the, the stuff that people, honestly, what I really kind of love about my site is I bring voices out that people don't hear that are really good because maybe their video gets five views on YouTube, but now it's in a place where that it's a niche that people are looking for content for nonprofits and their voice is really going to get heard much, much louder. Yeah, it's it's just a one-stop resource site for everything nonprofit for education and nonprofits. Now that's not to me. I want people to go to seminars. I want them to get degrees. But when your boss shows up uh, and says, "Hey, I need this report uh, by next week," and you haven't even heard of the subject, and it's a nonprofit, they can go there and get the information. Plus, it's great for volunteer training when. Uh, you bring in a cadre of people who need to train up on something specific like board members on accounting or board members on fundraising or something, or even just rank and file volunteers. It's a great place to get that content. The best way to get a hold of me, just go to the contact page there and uh, pop me a note. I see them all for better or for worse. You also have written at least one book, right? You mentioned. Uh, yeah, actually. Uh, well, so two books and a part of a third. So uh I uh, have a chap two chapters in a book on healthcare nonprofit management. I wrote the marketing chapters. And then I have a book on, uh, it's kind of a workbook I use for my classes. It's fun scenarios in fundraising, uh, character profiles that I apply questions to that you can just pick up and uh, read the piece and then think about the questions uh, that connect to it. And then the other book I mentioned earlier is all about uh, starting uh, and maintaining a nonprofit consultancy. That's the guide to nonprofit consultants. So if you go to Amazon, look up my name, uh, Matt or Matthew Hug, you'll find the books there. I have an author page there. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Matt Hug, it has been wonderful having you on Looking Forward. You've well, got you. such a wealth of knowledge, born of experience, <laughs> getting out there in the trenches, the colleges and many other places where you oh, have been. We really are grateful that you shared it with us today. Thanks a well, lot. Thank Matt. you. Thank you very much. And uh, just say it's nonprofit.courses, not.org or .com. Should have said that before, but, but thank you. No, I really, I enjoy these kind of conversations. Uh, I get to geek out on stuff that I find a lot of fun. So I'm happy to, happy to do this. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.